The battle of Britain is about to begin. back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. So we've been talking about a lot of different things over the last few weeks, but we haven't touched on some of the side projects that Lead Pursuit, Blue Falcon Hobbies, and whatever other names we want to hide behind, uh, the things that we have going on on the side. So tonight, I've got Brett and Steve on to talk about their campaign system. Well, Brett, how are you doing tonight? Hey, doing good. Steve, it's good to have you on as well. Yeah, doing good. All right, guys. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about what all we've seen out there, uh, what's going on in the ready room real quick, and then we'll dive into the campaign system simply because I know it'll take a while to talk to a uh, excruciatingly painful level of detail, uh, especially for people who were not at Gathering of Eagles last year and didn't get to see it uh, firsthand. But first, uh, what kind of things have we seen out there? I know uh, probably the biggest ticket item just dropped today from Steve in the ready room. Steve, tell us about those uh, target markers. Oh, man, this has been, like I said, probably like a month in the makings between the guys at Happy Hour talking about it and me talking to uh, uh, the guys over at Topside Minis and then trying to find the right neoprene. So uh, the ship neoprene target markers are finally ready to go not sure how i'm going to package them yet on the blue falcon website uh, if i'm going to like guys choose ships or if we're going to do kind of generic uh country packs or whatever but uh yeah i think they look awesome really excited for them they they look great they feel great on the neoprene i'm sorry i just had a playtest image i never need to have again i i saw steve and i stationed zebra in his basement shirtless wiping neoprene target markers all over his chest but that's all right now that i've shared that image with you you all also have that in your head so <laughs> we'll move on from that uncomfortable moment uh we saw some pretty cool cutting mats out there so those self-healing rotary style cutting mats uh tankcraft.com brett what did those look like man those are pretty cool i think trevor was the one that found them actually there's a, a p47 thunderbolt and i think there's uh a Spitfire and, and maybe some tanks and stuff. Anyway, you can have your cutting mat on top of your hobby table with, uh, looks like, uh, you know, blueprints of the aircraft on the, on the cutting mats. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, they had the, the finest aircraft ever, the Spitfire on there. Uh, then they had the worst aircraft ever, the P 47 and uh, a couple other ones like the Mustang, you know, whatever that aircraft's all about. Uh, but yeah, they had a bunch of those. So <laughs> I, uh, I, they didn't have any airplanes. I was really, jonesing for so maybe i'll buy a tank one i don't know um, but they do look like pretty cool mats out there uh you know kind of as we were saying beforehand uh, before the the podcast kicked off i'm, I'm always cautious because man they look so good in the photos and i know it's going to show up and it's going to look cheesy but uh, i'll probably still jump in on it anyway just to try so let's talk about some upcoming events twisted lords as we've talked about tournament on saturday the 24th lots of blood red skies games throughout the whole weekend 
So if you want to show up, play Blood Red Skies, and be sick of seeing me by the end of the weekend, uh, 23 to 25 July out there in Oklahoma City. Uh, NashCon, we just got confirmed for. Yay! So we've got tables on Saturday. Uh, previously, we'd said Sunday. Uh, I wasn't real happy that uh, baby was getting put in the corner on that one, but I took any slot I could. But they just opened up uh, a series of tables on Saturday. So Saturday afternoon, about 2 to 6 p.m., on 20 to 22 August in Nashville at the Sheridan Convention Center. Uh, come by, make fun of me, uh, and run a tournament there. Uh, then obviously we've got uh, on 22, 24 October, two events, Texas Broadsides at the Lone Star Flight Museum and Siege of Vicksburg. And I think uh, maybe you might get two lead pursuit guys at Siege of Vicksburg if we can make the stars align for our schedules. But who knows? Um, obviously a lot of conventions are starting to open back up. Uh, there's some other ones that we've been thinking about, like Crucible in Orlando. Uh, if you want to know where to find it, go to the leadpursuit.page, page. Yes, leadpursuit.net. Click on Gathering of Eagles, and there's a bar down there for Blood Red Skies Tournament. Click on that. It'll give you the listing, the dates, the links, everything you need to know. So uh, please, we'd love to see a lot of you at these events this summer and this fall as things open up. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you feel like getting out and uh, going to these events, it'd be awesome to see you there. Anyone else have any other events or other cool things they know are happening this summer or this fall? Good. I like that answer. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the main topic. Brett, you and Steve had this crazy idea and said, you know what? We want to play campaigns. And, and we don't want just a simple one-page campaign system. No, we want something with a lot of depth. So tell us how this whole thing really got started, Brett, because I know uh, you and Steve and I had batted around some ideas, but uh, but you guys were really kind of pushing it. Yeah, well, it started, honestly enough. I actually went back and listened to some of the old podcasts trying to figure out like what we've actually discussed about this concept, and it, it helped me remember how the whole thing really started. Uh, so, of course, when COVID hit, I think Steve and I were messing around on tabletop simulator playing uh, games. And I think, what, Steve, we probably played two or three games, just regular pickup games over Tabletop Simulator back in probably mid to late March. Is that right? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think a lot of it was even just kind of right when Tabletop Sim was coming out. We were kind of trying to figure out how to use it and just, uh, you know, even more just testing out Tabletop Sim than really playing any real games. Right, right. We're just, you know, looking for a way to continue to play as we were in lockdown and had extra time on our hands, right? So anyway, Steve and I kind of fell into this habit where we were, you know, almost had a game night, like every Wednesday night and sometimes Saturday we would get oh, on. special. And, they had a date night. How it was, wonderful. It was some serious bromance. So yeah, so we're playing <laughs> tabletop simulator, but right away, once we got some games and, you know, got comfortable with the mechanics of tabletop simulator, you just kind of needed a little bit more. And I think right around the same time, we were starting to pay attention to Sandstorm, which had come out sometime before. So for those who don't know, Sandstorm was a uh, a downloadable thing that you could get from from uh, Warlord that they put out. It was like it was supposed to be you know, a campaign focused on the Western Desert. And it was really cool. You know, what it, it's, it was, I think, thoughtfully put together and we hadn't really played it. I think we had talked about it on a, on the podcast and, and had gone through the rules and stuff. But we're like, Hey man, you know, there's that sandstorm thing. Why don't we try to do that? Cause it might be kind of cool. Like you, maybe you make some characters with your guys, like you, you roll for some names and maybe you get some pilot skills. And instead of just playing these random one-off games, we'll play games that link together. Right. That's the concept. That was just really how it started. So we started doing that. 
and we might have played a couple of games and right away are like, man, we we need to do a little bit more. I, I kind of let Steve mention, because I think it was his idea where we started borrowing from some other places to add to that. Yeah, I don't I don't really remember how we segued into that. Uh, I remember playing a, a couple games and we had read through the squadron forward, which is a two fat lardy system thing. And we were like, yeah, I'm not sure if this really applies or this might be a little, you know, too kind of dungeons and dragons for what we want to do type thing, you know? Uh, and then the more we played sandstorm, we would get to the end of the games and we would be like, Oh man, you know, let's roll and see what happened to that guy. Or let's, uh, you know, roll and see if, uh, you know, that guy got three kills, but he got shot down and now he has to start over and I have to make a replacement. And we really started to have these like, kind of like fun, just kind of like, uh, laughing hysterically, uh, remorsefully crying over losing fictional pilots, you know, and it kind of, kind of really made us looking for some more of that game between the game action. That's right. That's that was kind of the key for us because it really did start out just as some pickup games, and we're like, hey, let's let's make some games that are a little bit more meaningful, where they kind of link together and tell a story, if you will. So we kind of borrowed from stuff that was out there. Steve found Andy's campaign rules on the Ready Room files, and that helped us kind of like throw a little bit more in and maybe figure out some outcomes after the game. Some you know basically some to bolt on some stuff to I think what we were borrowing from Sandstorm, but um, the more we played, the more we thought, man. It, it, like Steve said, the game between the game, right? So we're playing, let's say it's every Wednesday night. It, it was generally like once a week. Uh, we would play a game. Then we'd conclude the game and figure out what the next game was going to be. But we'd have this big anticipation like all week long, but there wasn't anything to do until that game time. Well, we started finding ways to bolt stuff on that became like the game after the game, if you will, so that it made the time in between when we could actually get together and roll dice a little bit more fun because, you know, we're list building, we're figuring out our rosters and, you know, accounting for things that uh, would happen with like losing aircraft and losing guys and getting new aircraft. And so all that kind of stuff that we could, you know, putz around with and text each other about in between games. And that was really how, how it got started. Well, you know, I do have to go back to just, taking a look at sandstorm itself because that's actually not a bad system for eight pages of rules and two pages of cards and, and data sheets. Uh, so it's, it's kind of funny to listen to you guys go, yeah, we, we kept wanting more cause it actually has a lot inside that little bit of, uh, of rules there. But I think one of the interesting things you talked about is, is the action in between the games and, and feeling like you wanted to fill your time with something other than list building and figuring out what the perfect way to beat your opponent was. Because that's a component of a lot of role-playing games out there, whether it's generating replacement characters because you've lost them in between gaming sessions, or just working on some of the background of where do your characters fit in the wider world. And it's it's really surprising to hear people talk about that in relation to miniatures games. Because to me, I go... I didn't really want that. I would have played a role-playing game, but that's just, you know, the, the community that I came from at the time. Yeah. You know, when we first started, we were kind of reluctant to put too much on. I mean, we, I, we knew we wanted to do something a little bit more, but we weren't sure, right? We hadn't played Sandstorm before. We'd seen the, the material. We were kind of like, yeah, that, that looks like fun. Let's do that. But 
we had, as we started kind of thinking, well, it'd be kind of cool to add this stuff on and maybe we could borrow from this, this thing over here. And then I think, uh, you know, we found, um, the squadron forward stuff from two fat lardies, which had a, r- a lot of really cool stuff. It wasn't blood red sky specific, but it was almost too much. That was kind of like in the beginning for us was like, I don't know, that's, that looks a little intimidating. I don't know if I really want to go that far with it, but the more we played, the more it was like, well, that could work if, if you kind of, min- you know, change it to make it more blood red sky specific. And anyway, it all kind well, of evolved. I, th- I think that's that's what kind of you know was what I was driving at is it seems like uh, in my background so many of the things that I played that were campaigns or connecting multiple games were because they were a, a really complex system and something that was was carrying on behind it and I was like man I love Blood Ritz guys because it's simple it's mindless I push some faceless aircraft around the uh, the board and I'm not worried about losing them and now you guys have put all that emotion back in there so thanks for yeah. oh yeah I would say <laughs> at this point you know we started out you know not wanting to do that and now I'm only a solid like uh, you know 1940s oxygen mask away from just full-on larping through life as a world war ii fighter pilot so <laughs> if you if you show up that way at gathering of eagles i'm gonna act like i don't know you <laughs> I, I fully expect that people are gonna hear this and, and better yet they're gonna see the uh you know see what we've put together when it, we actually can put it in somebody's hands and, and they're gonna be like well this is a little crazy i don't know i i fully expect that the the folks are going to, a lot of folks, most, maybe most folks are going to be like, this is too much. Right. But I think what's going to happen is folks are going to play it. They're going to mess around with it and it's going to grow on them like it did for us. And and that's, that's kind of how we went into this thing is like, Hey, look, we want to make this thing easy to pick up where you don't have to read a bunch and you won't get lost in the, in the, in the booklet or whatever you have. Right. It's, it's going to be easy to follow without having to read the whole thing first. And then you feel free to tailor it to the games you want to play. You want to just, you know, have some guys with some names that you can kind of track along. Hey, that's fine. We got this stuff in there for you. If if you want to go, you know, full retard with it, you can. You could do that. That's it's, it, and I think you'll have fun doing that too. Uh, it may take a couple of games before you're ready to do that. I don't know, but it, maybe there's something for everybody in there. And we we tried to make it so it's sort of accessible in that way because in, in we were, I don't know. I try to p- paint this picture for you. As we were playing our game, we literally had photocopied sheets from like three or four different sources because we weren't using the full Sandstorm thing. Like we learned, we like after several games, we liked parts of it, but it wasn't by itself really what we wanted. We had we kind of incorporated parts of that and then parts of some other thing and then parts of this this third thing and then we modified those and you know so now imagine after several games, Steve and I each have you know, these photocopied pages that are stapled all over the place and have sticky notes on them. And, you know, there's no, our own handwritten notes written on the side with arrows. You know, it, it was kind of stupid, right? It wasn't anything that we could share with anybody, but it worked for us. And then I think the thing that really tipped it to being something we could share with somebody was after kind of describing the madness at the uh, virtual gathering of Eagles last summer, I remember I was getting ready to head home. And he said, you know, why don't you like, type that up so people can use it and i was like oh god just what you need another project (laughs) yeah Yeah. that was kind of during the virtual we were kind of in one of the side sessions we were kind of just talking about the campaign and a couple guys were like man well you should put together what pages of this you use what pages of that you use and then the more we looked at it we were like 
I don't even really know what we're using a what anymore. And we just kind of, <laughs> you just kind of made know. it up as you went along. But yeah. I think that's how most games, uh, most games really have started. I mean, that right there writ large is how Dungeons and Dragons got started and, you know, went through 14 different versions and variants. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the campaign games that were released as, uh, as uh, I had to think about it there, World of Greyhawk didn't really even really resemble the Greyhawk that Gary Gygax was playing. So uh, it's kind of funny. You guys probably have your own personal uh, campaign rules that will never never make the light of day because they're just uh, too obtuse or complex for everybody else to want to play with. But that's fine. So there's a there's a lot of similarity too out there to things you might have already seen. So I mentioned like two fat lardies, and the, I've mentioned you know Andy's campaign rules, which I think have been borrowed and used in in some of the Ready Room campaign stuff. Um, and I mentioned uh, the Sandstorm thing, obviously, uh, but also like even like the Dan Versing games, the uh, single player games. I think there's elements of that that we didn't intentionally like copy, but there's a lot of similarity in some of the way things happen for your characters and some of your aircraft and stuff. So, we'll, you know, of course, we'll get into all that. But uh, if you've done campaign stuff, which is kind of a new thing for me, right? I haven't played a lot of campaign games, but now that I'm becoming more aware of campaign gaming because of this effort, I'm seeing that, you know, it's there's a lot of similarities from the broader concept. Yep. Yep. Well, let's enough talking generalities. Let's walk through it. So let's we uh, we talked a little bit about the intent and, and how you guys had built the system. Let's talk about the system itself. And let's let's use that word that nobody wants to hear on a wargaming podcast. We're going to talk about the C word. We're going to talk about characters so tell me about creating characters well that was kind of the first part uh, that, that kind of the main thing that we wanted to incorporate you know when we first started looking at this it was like you know if we have some characters and those guys maybe can level up or they can some bad things can happen to them it'll just make the games a little bit more interesting so we do actually have a whole like character generation component to the to the pregame you want to talk about that steve yeah, you know, it's actually, it's kind of one of those things that uh, it's really funny how you just randomly generate these characters and then, uh, you know, it gets a lot of times people say like when you have a kid, when you name your kid, it doesn't matter what you name your child, they kind of wind up having a personality that kind of like fulfills that name, right? It is crazy how in our games that we've played, you generate these characters, you give them a name, you might give them, uh, you know, they get a pilot skill level, and then there's a chance that they'll get a random ace skill or they'll get some kind of background that they were like, uh, you know, say they were a crop duster and they get an extra little point for that or, you know, these weird things. And as you play through the game, how your characters that you created really start to kind of take on uh, this almost personality as you play through. So just, you know, I know Brett has one or two guys that no joke, every time you get behind this guy and you're shooting at him, you could be tailing him, whatever. I mean, this guy is just dodging everything. And it's just funny how you start to build this little bit of personality and you start to connect them from game to game and uh, really gets you invested in the idea of playing the game and what's going on on the tabletop and even the actions that you're taking with your characters in the game. So the, the character creation and uh, the skills they get and their background that you can generate 
really becomes an real integral part of list building, uh, element building when you're deploying what's going on after the game, who you're actually putting on the table for a given scenario. So that, that core concept of creating characters that you're then going to track throughout the game is really a very integral part. We actually uh, have a whole mechanism for generating the characters. I mean, we, we include like a little roster for you to fill out. So you know how many, you know, folks you're going to put in your squadrons and, we actually even give you a link uh, that we found online. It was really helpful for us to generating the names for characters from certain nationalities. So you get these, you know, kind of random name generator that helps you come up with like German names or, you know, English names or whatever, right? So that was kind of fun. And um, then we go so far as, uh, you know, we kind of move on from, um, you know, just generating the names to generating the pilot skill. So you, you can imagine you're going to have you know, a squadron leader, you're going to have element leaders and you're going to have just, you know, maybe some rookie pilots. So mostly your squadron's going to be, you know, pretty, pretty rookie pilots at the very basic level. But those leader characters uh, are going to have the potential to have a little higher skill. And it's not crazily so like, you know, you might get super lucky and your squadron leader might be a, a five, a, a, an ace, but that's not common. It's, you know, it's probably he's probably going to be a four. Uh, your your element leaders are probably going to be a three, and everybody else is probably going to be a two when you start out. Uh, but as the game progresses, you know, of course, there's room for guys to promote up if they survive that kind of thing. But we also throw in uh, special ace skills. So if you if you were to look at your ace skill deck, right, all the cards that you may have in your collection for ace skills, some of them aren't necessarily the kind of skills that would require you know tons of flight experience like a guy who just has unusually good eyesight is you know he could potentially have eagle eyes right so there, we try to like pull from there's a few cards out there that seem like that where it's sort of like an innate skill thing and there is a chance that even like your rookie guy could have that kind of a skill there's there's a small number of them but we thought that those kind of things would be just kind of fun because you could start out a game with a rookie guy who has well, I, I use the example eagle eyes. I don't want to give, you know, to take the time to explain, you know, how many of them there are, but that's just an example of one. So, you know, you might even start the game with a couple of guys, even if they're not aces, might have some of these specific ace skills. That just makes the game kind of fun, right? And it's a point that, uh, that we kind of made, Roger and I talked about, when we were doing some of the scenarios for Big Alley and beyond, that there's some pilots in there that we award pilot skill five to that we give a skills to that really at that point aren't aces uh some of them later on become aces some end up an airplane shy of an ace whatever uh but the point is they still had those innate skills no matter how many aircraft they'd shot down at that point in that in their career so i think that's a it's a good way to build some characters that may have some staying power uh and then hopefully those uh those pilot skills too with good skills uh don't go away and don't get shot down early uh in the early phases of the campaign well, walk us through a little bit about how you how you set the game up. How do you begin the campaign? How do you generate your missions and, and all those things? Okay. Well, we do, a, uh, just to wrap up the character thing, we actually do uh, add some personality stuff and some 
professional background, like pre-war background to each of the characters, which, you know, imparts a little bit of potential for some uh, increased value for individual pilots. Uh, so that's that's part of it too. But once we um, generate the uh, you know your list of characters, your pilots, right? Uh, you uh, also get a chance to generate some special characters that are sort of like your non-player characters or whatever for the uh, for the group, if you will. If you're going to do more than one squadron, which is a thing, you could have um, some non-player character characters that have some interaction after your games. So there's that. But as far as like actually just setting up for the game, once you have your, you know, once you and your the guy you're going to play with have decided on, you know, what nationality each of you are going to play and maybe what, what portion of the war you're going to play and kind of what kind of time period you want your, your campaign to last, you would probably choose, you know, some, you come to a uh, decision on, okay, each game is going to equal this amount of time because we're going to follow kind of like a calendar. That's going to be important because it's going to affect the availability of different aircraft. So, uh, uh, you know, it, Steve and I do, in our game, because we want to play kind of a long time, each game we play represents one month of calendar time. Uh, but, you know, folks may choose to do, you know, one game equals one week or some other time period, depending on what they're doing. Uh, and that lets us move through the calendar where at different periods, you know, early war, or, uh, early in one year, the middle of one year, or the late portion of any given year, you know, things happen with aircraft availability. Some aircraft become unavailable and new aircraft become available and that'll affect like things that go on. But as far as actually setting up the game, it's a lot like what you're already doing. And once you have your, your rosters built and you know your air, you have your aircraft lists all ready to go, uh, all the stuff that you do with special characters and all that kind of stuff really doesn't have a, a role in the game too much until after. Uh, uh, we are going to get into a, a spot where you're going to have to roll for your mission type. And uh, we use pretty much all the missions that are in Airstrike, but they're weighted so that some missions are a little more likely than others. I think in all the games we've played, the pro most of them have been priority target and dogfight. Those are the most likely games you'll play. But, you know, transport hunt could come up, surprise attack, bounce. There's a whole bunch of them. You know, virtually all the airstrike missions could come up in one of these games uh, you also roll for the battle size because that's kind of a random element too like some games are going to be 500 point games and they'll play pretty quick but some games could be 1500 point games so a little bigger and then so there's kind of three basic sizes 500 1000 1500 point games if there's if it's a scenario that has a target element to it you're going to roll on a chart we provide to determine what the target's going to be and that will affect you know how challenging the game might be and then um you're pretty much ready to go you'll know your the, the well, let's talk about that just for for a second because a 1500 point game people have to stop and think about this you might need a few more models how many uh how many aircraft are you guys fielding per side in, in those 1500 point games not counting things like transports bombers and other free airplane early so early in the campaign when you have uh, squadrons made up of primarily, uh, you know, level two guys, uh, and you're we were we started right in Battle of Britain, right? So we were using pretty much Mark II Spitfires, uh, early Spitfires, early 109s, 
we were pretty much throwing – there were games where we had – each had 18 to 20 aircraft out there. You know, you and then plus if it's a priority target mission, you have, you know – your three bombers per every element. I mean, there were easily games where we had 40, 45 planes on the board. So this is where I'll make a plug of why Blood Red Skies? Because you can play a game that big and it doesn't take you six hours. <laughs> now, that being said, a little truth in advertising. With Tabletop Sim, I know it slowed some things down. But, you know, what was that? Probably three, four hours of gaming in a night? Yeah. Yeah, probably certainly two hours plus. Uh, you know, that would be a longer night. And there were games that were 1500 point games where we wouldn't finish the game that evening. Cause you know, it might be, get, we might not be getting on until like eight o'clock at night, almost nine o'clock at night. So we play till like 10 or 11 and then we just pick up, like pick up where we left off and uh, continue the game next time. But you, we're that talking the advantage of That's the advantage of tabletop sim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Save and walk away. I mean, you're talking, you know, three, four squadrons of aircraft on there. And uh, you know, I didn't really mention it, but what we do in our campaign system is a fighter squadron and an attack squadron. And I know that's not necessarily like historically accurate. I kind of think of it as like a historical fiction. You know, we based these squadrons, each of us, uh, Steve and I just kind of picked a squadron we thought was kind of cool for that time period that we sort of mimic, if you will. But I mean, we recognize that, you know, the way that, uh, you know, the command and control and stuff might've worked for these kind of units it wouldn't have been together like that but the way it would the reason why it was fun is because you know, obviously you're going to have your fighter squadron right that's probably like the mainstay of what you're doing but there you know you could get one of these missions like priority target or something like that where it's like man i really wish i had some attack like an attack element that i could incorporate in occasionally so it was just kind of like a nice accessory to the rest of the game so when you did get one of those big games you had just a little bit more to mess with and the same kind of mechanic for like leveling guys up and replacing aircraft would apply to that sort of auxiliary unit, if you want to call it that, uh, in, in the attack squadron. Well, so. let's, let's talk about how you guys define that attack squadron, because I think people are going to be a little confused because it's not a, a normal term we talk about in Blood Red Skies. Uh, how do you guys build that in the campaign system? Well, uh, we generally considered attack those things that have points on the master list and are things like your heavy fighters, your night fighters, your ground attack aircraft, right? So so not generic bombers, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Things that were clearly bombers that ex expressly don't have points on the master list, those are bombers, right? And so you'll see things like the, you know, the Stuka dive bomber and, you know, JU-88s and things like that. Well, not all the JU-88s anyway, because I think there's one with points. But anyway... Uh, you know, AT-111, certainly, things like that. Those are all going to be on the bomber list for give you something to choose from when you do have a bomber mission. Uh, and that's really just so that you can... They, we provide the list for bombers, not because they're pointed in any real way, but because when you have a mission that requires bombers, you can actually select bombers that are appropriate for that particular time frame, if you will. But then also, you know, you have some like flexibility you might say hey you know i'm going to do some stukas and some he-111s or whatever as an example right and if you're a guy that is playing the game and you don't really know uh what was historically available for bombers at, for that belligerent power at that period of time this is kind of baby burden you because you can just refer to a chart that's pretty easy to follow and go oh what's this airplane i mean that's kind of one of our hopes is that somebody could play this game without a whole great deal of historical 
you know, knowledge about a particular force and still find some stuff like, oh my gosh, what's this plane? Okay, cool. I'm going to play, I'm going to fly that, you know? So that might be a thing. I was going to let Steve weigh in and say <laughs> about building attack and fighter squadrons in the, uh, in the same kind of list group and giving your perspective on it. Yeah. You know, so the, the cool thing about it is, uh, it gives you more flexibility depending on the mission. So there were missions where, you know, I vividly remember having to try to destroy a ship. And I was like, man, I want some guys out there that can do some strafing, but I don't want to throw these guys out there that I've been putting a lot of effort into leveling up in the event that they get shot down. Right. So you kind of build this secondary squadron, uh, like Brett was saying, purpose, Purpose-built planes might not have much maneuver, maneuver maneuverability, might have a little more firepower, and it just adds to the flexibility of what you can do when when you're playing different size games and different scenarios that you probably wouldn't really play if you were just getting together uh, to play once in a while with with somebody you're playing with where you're probably just always going to kind of play priority target or dogfight and not really explore some of the other scenarios. And I think that happens when you spend time just trying to kill a target rather than do historical things, because even 1940s, you're going to have flak suppression aircraft. You're going to have, you know, fighter bombers that are out there. And at least we have cards like air to ground rockets, bomb shackles, torpedo shackles, aircraft that are that are stuck into other missions other than what they were originally designed for on some of these larger, comp more complex raids, because that's what they did. And, you know, using aircraft with strafing ordnance to go out there and to take out some of the light AAA to make it, uh, you know, more accessible for uh, the bombers to come in, the dive bombers to be able to get down and do their work at low altitude. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff, I think, makes it a little bit more uh, cinematic and movie-like. Uh, and yeah, it ups the complexity. It's a whole other squadron you got to track. But um, that's one of those things that I think will be interesting to see how people uh, accept that concept uh, once they get used to playing with some of the cards that you know don't show up in the base system. You know, one of the things I, I, I might have touched on but didn't really explain, we intended this to be something that you could easily pick up and just run with without having to read through the whole thing. I mean, folks will probably do that anyway, but you don't necessarily have to. That was one of the things we found in some of the resources that inspired us to put things together is that some of them they were so complicated that we were kind of turned off by it in the beginning because we didn't understand it and what we try to do in this all throughout is have a little bit of narrative that it kind of explains sort of the fun reason why this might make sense and then give you some rules so it's not like it's just a book of rules and some charts right there's like there's a little bit of narrative that goes that it kind of explains the rationale behind a particular rule set. Then there's the rule that it's kind of, you know, kind of really without, I just thought of this, it wasn't purposeful, but it's very much like how the cards are in blood red skies, right? The doctrine cards and the ACE cards, there's all this, that little narrative that explains kind of, this is a very same formula, right? There's a little rationale bit. Then there's the rule. It says do this. And, and uh, that's how, that's how the book goes. So even when it's explaining things like, Hey, you might choose to do this, attack squadron thing it explains why and then we put a little designer's notes in there throughout for things that might be like hey look try it this way or you know don't do it this other way it's all yours um hopefully hopefully folks will find that pretty easy to pick up with and and, and tailor to their own 
game need, you know. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the actual playthrough of the game once you're in the, the main part of the campaign. You know, you've gone through, you've kind of picked your scenario, rolled for your scenarios, figured out how large the battle is, uh, obviously gone through and determined the targets that are out there, uh, and then put together your roster. But once once you really start, quote, playing Blood Red Skies uh, in the deployment phase, uh, how does things uh, really tie in there between the campaign system and Blood Red Skies? It's very much like what you're already doing, right? So we didn't intend to change Blood Red Skies rules. We just use the rules that already exist and have you roll things. So I know a lot of times, Doug, when you and I would play pickup games and stuff, we would just kind of you know, talk out loud like, okay, what do you want to do? You want to do this? Okay, let's pick this, you know, let's pick this scenario and let's do, you know, these weather conditions and then we just kind of agree on it and go. Well, now it's just going to be a little bit more randomized is all, right? So all the stuff I talked about, about, you know, building your roster and knowing what planes you're going to come to the table with, you might be doing that stuff ahead of time before actual game day. Like, that's what Steve and I would do. Then we'd, we'd meet to play and then we already know what our mission's going to be, the target size, or the target type, how big the thing is going to be. We have our rosters already done and we go to deployment, right? So that part is virtually the same. We determine initiative, we place clouds. Uh, but one thing that we do, it's a little bit different, is we determine the weather through a dice roll. And, uh, you know, you could have everything from down drafts to clear skies and everything in between. And that will certainly affect, you know, cloud mechanics and other things that happen in the game. So we do that. We also uh, determine front lines, uh, you know, where the enemy front line is. And who's, you know, we, there's, it could be different ways, you know, kind of think on, uh, you know, like a lot of games, you have uh, some kind of dice roll to determine what the, what the, uh, battle layout's going to be. It's kind of like that, but instead of determining the battle layout, it just is drawing a line that determines, okay, this is the front line. This side is your side. This side is my side. And that's important because later when you get on, like if you get shot down or a guy bails out in enemy territory, that may have some consequences, right? So we do yeah. that step. I think I think the one thing that's really cool is you're talking about determining weather and determining a front line. So when you determine the weather, there's obviously a consequence that happens in the game where downdrafts changes how clouds play or uh, tropical conditions changes how planes fly. Uh, the other cool thing about that is if you get bad weather or overcast, it doesn't just affect how the game plays. There's also a tie into that. So after the game, uh, when guys are you know returning to base or guys are doing landing checks with a damaged plane, those weather conditions then play into that where it's going to be harder for a damaged plane to make a landing on a you know, storm cloud uh, random roll than it is on a clear skies random roll. So everything that happens during the game, we tried to tie into some type of after the game or narrative uh, part of the campaign as well. Yeah, um, we collect our action deck like you already accustomed to doing. We do add something to the deck though. Uh, some of those storm condition or uh, weather conditions might add a extra, uh, like a theater weather card to your deck that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Uh, we have a, a random event card that we'll talk about later, but that gets added into your deck. You get all your, your stuff together. Uh, now, one thing that we do, it's a little bit of a bolt-on to the pre-existing rules. If you have missions that have bombers, we don't just go with 
you know, standard pilot skill three bombers. We actually have a, uh, a thing where you can roll to determine the uh, bomber pilot skill. We did that because it seems sometimes arbitrarily generic to have these guys all be skill level three. And, some, and, and it's not that the odds are very high that they're going to be high skill guys, but it was just interesting to have that possibility be something that could be entered into the game. So we do that. That's a little bit different when you're chucking your bombers out on the table. You know, some of those guys may have a skill other than three. And then you just do deployment like normal. Uh, that gets us right up to a thing we call the pre-combat event. You want to talk about that, Steve? Yeah, I could do that. So the pre-combat event is a kind of a cool thing that's in there where you might have something after you've, you know, devised this perfect force, you have your plan all in place, kind of adds the randomness of battle into the game. Uh, this pre-combat event can be good or bad for you. Uh, it is a randomly rolled event. And it can be anything from uh, you having an aircraft malfunction where you're losing a guy or he's going back to base, you're gaining a boom shit. Uh, it could be something where uh, a random flight of aircraft are coming back to base and they see you and they join up on your mission and go out with you and you gain two pilots. So it's just a way that we sort of went ahead and added that little bit of randomness to the battle that was kind of always there. And it's not something that's going to happen every single game, uh, but it happens enough that it really kind of adds a neat little narrative to it uh, in some of the scenarios. Yeah, odds, odds are there won't be, you know, your random event will be a, a non-event. But every once in a while, you'll have some guy has like some kind of, you know, minor system malfunction and you lose a plane or so, you know, something like that. So there's little things that could happen that kind of maybe upset the best laid plans of mice and men, right? So there's obviously pre-combat events that you go through that uh, can be everything from good to indifferent to horrible. Uh, but pretty soon you get actually into the game. You talked a little bit about how you have event cards in your deck, but what else uh, are you tracking there? Because Blood Red Skies is notoriously not a game of bookkeeping, yet to tell a narrative and to to make it a little bit of a of a campaign thread, uh, you got to do a little bit of bookkeeping out there, don't you? Yeah, well, we certainly keep track of victory tally. So, you know, as your guys manage to shoot down opponents, that's an important thing to keep track of because that'll have you know later consequences in terms of you know pilot experience points and you know gaining experience, which eventually allows them to level up potentially. Uh, we keep track of aircraft that are damaged because uh, there'll be some consequences in the you know post game for that. Uh, we keep track of um, you know if somebody was shot down or, or bailed out or something like that, where, where that happened, right? If it was in friendly or enemy territory, and then we we came up with a thing we call valor points, which um, really apply to the squadron at large and may uh, allow the you know if if a uh, if the squadron does something. Uh, if pilots in the squadron do something really exceptionally cool, and, and I guess the best way to describe it, is we've all had those games where you're playing along and something just really cool happens, right? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that guy shot down those two guys. That was amazing, or whatever, right? When something, when some kind of crazy cool thing like that happens, or on the opposite side, but something like really crappy happens, like, man, I can't believe my pilot, you know, where you shot roll like 19 dice and none of them hit, would yeah. that be a negative? Yeah, that never like happens, negative... Steve. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about, man. 
Yeah, those moments, right? And there might be only one or two of those kind of things that ever happen in a game. We thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to capture those moments in a way where it actually affects the way the, um, you know, maybe good or bad things that happen for the squadron, right? And I think other systems might have have a, a way to recognize that kind of thing. We try to just kind of tighten it up a little bit as it relates to Blood Red Skies games. And, um, you know, it's not a huge nerf or a huge buff to post-game things, but it might just make it a little bit easier for that squadron to, you know, let's say they had an exceptionally valorous encounter. Uh, it may mean that this time around, it's a little bit easier for them to get the pilot replacement they desperately needed or to get the, uh, you know, the new aircraft replacement that, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, one of their planes was still, you know, in the shop or hadn't been repaired yet. Maybe, maybe that extra little bit of valor motivated somebody at the, at the group staff to pull some strings and get, get them the plane they needed, you know, so little things like that. So that's kind of a fun thing. Uh, I mentioned that there's an in-game random event, right? So that's an actual card that we provide that is something you can add to your action deck. And when that comes up, and in a game, it's typically only going to come up once, maybe twice in a really long game. So we use the, um, the standard, uh, you know, um, standard deck mechanic where it's not an open deck. So it's kind of that thing where if it comes up, it's kind of a cool thing. And it's a little bit like the pre-game or pre-combat random event, but this is actually happening in the, you know, in the midst of the fight. You, know, you could be on round two and things are starting to get sporty, and next thing you know, something unexpected happens. Uh, you want to talk about some of that? I say Steve? such as Steve. Yeah, what kind of events I mean, are there? all kinds of stuff, right? So uh, one of the be- one of the best ones I think is the friendly or enemy reinforcements. So on rare occasions, you will, uh, as it says, you'll either get reinforcements or you will run into some enemy reinforcements, which is essentially uh, a free high cover element of varying sizes for you or your enemy and there have been several games that we have played where uh you know it looks like the game is pretty much decided and then that random event card comes in and it just you know kind of changes everything up they kind of deploy high cover right behind you get that you know advantage turn and next thing you know you lose a plane and the whole thing's going you know just going crazy uh just a great way to kind of add some spice in there. Uh, and then some of the simpler stuff, not everything is that dramatic, you know? So, uh, uh, in the zone is one that can take a disadvantaged pilot and bump them up an advantage level. So kind of like that guy got some, some kind of crazy inspiration and did some fancy flying and gained his advantage level back or, uh, stall or flame out, which is kind of the opposite of that. Uh, one of your pilots goes down an advantage level because they flew too hard and they stalled their plane, you know? So just, just little things in there that, uh, can go from anything from dramatically changing the battle to just having kind of like, uh, you know, a little effect that you, you didn't see coming to just kind of mix it up a little bit. The way right all now these- warlord games is extremely happy that people will need more and more and more models uh, yeah. <laughs> that you just can't play this campaign system with six hurricanes. <laughs> right. The, uh, Obviously, it's a conspiracy where we're working hand in hand with the warlord to sell more of their boxes because that's what we've been accused of. So, 
anyway, sorry. Continue, Brent. No, I was just going to say all the, all the little events that we describe, whether it's like, you know, what's happening to your pilots when they get shot down or what's happening with these random events, it's all an odds thing, right? And, and uh, you know, the most, uh, the most radical uh, events, right, the, the most, you know, uh, th- those are harder odds, right? So, like, we talked about like getting, you know, enemy reinforcements suddenly showing up on the board. You know, that, that's a potentially pretty big swing in the game. Well, that's really rare odds, right? That doesn't always happen. It could. It could certainly happen. And certainly Steve and I have had games where that's happened for us. But that's Steve has proven the odds do not apply to him. So yeah, if, yeah. if the odds are that you will not fail 18 dice worth of checks, he will fail 18 dice worth of checks. Yeah, in most cases, all these things, the high odds are the things that are the most sort of mild, the most mild uh, consequences. But, you know, rolling ones generally sucks <laughs> when it yeah, happens. Yeah. Bad things happen. So, all right. So uh, that's pretty much so, it for the game. The game itself, with the exception of those little bolt-ons, plays the same, right? You, you play to the mission that's in the airstrike book. We haven't changed any of those missions. We haven't made any. We just said, we just randomized the missions. You just play the missions as they're written in airstrike with these little random things going on but in the end success uh you know victory conditions occur just as it's stated in the um in the airstrike book for that scenario and you get to well as cb stevens kind of said uh, when he was talking to us last week about his cashmere campaign system uh the real pain and all the real work is in the post game uh so tell us a little bit about what uh, flavor and flair you've added there to the post-game part of the campaign system. All right, that's so that's kind of one of the best parts. So when Steve and I would play our games, you know, I kind of describe like all these little things that happen. We play the game, right? And then we stay on and we work out all the post-game stuff. Like, okay, what was the outcome for that guy that got shot down? You know, we, we would do all those things together because there's a little bit of dice rolling and stuff that would happen. And it's super fun because, like, I was always really anxious. Like, I finally shot that guy down. Is, am I going to finally get him this time? You know, and then you find out, no, he, he landed perfectly fine and he's okay. But, you know, sometimes it goes the other way. And you're like, yeah, I got him, you know. So it was like a lot of sort of suspense that was going on. So, yeah, so we... Resolve shoot downs, right? That's kind that, of that is there's the so much suspense for it. Okay, suspense? it is the most suspenseful thing I have ever rolled a dice over. When you have a guy that you've been leveling up for six or seven games, and you have to roll to see if he just crashes his plane on landing, and you just keep rolling one several times in a row, it is so suspenseful. I I can't even describe it. Yeah, yeah, so it, much suspense that Silver Dragon stole my sword. What will I do? Right. That's right. You're a bunch it, of dorks. Okay, what, what sorry. It's, Continue. It's, uh, <laughs> blood Red Dragons. Blood Dungeon Dungeons Skies and Red Dragons or something, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bunch of nerds. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, I'll stop picking but on it, you. It, 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 is, uh, it is super fun, though. I mean, it, it, as nerdy as it sounds, it, it, it's crazy how you kind of get wrapped up in it, you know? Um, Steve would always say, like, if one of his favorite guys ever got shot down he's gonna have to take like a bereavement day at work or something it's probably about true yeah exactly so yeah that's that's about the first thing we do is figure out okay all those guys that got shot down you got to resolve all that right and there's a range of things that could occur right with the shoot down i think obviously a guy could be killed 
uh, he could be, you know, just killed outright, like in a fiery ball of flame, right? And that guy that not only is the aircraft lost, but your favorite pilot's gone, like off their roster. Sorry, sucks to be you kind of thing, right? And you got to shuffle your roster around when that happens. Like, okay, guys, all of a sudden got to move up and fill spaces and, you know, whatever. And, and, and all the narrative and explanation on how to manage all that's in the book too. But, uh, you know, not always is the guy just, you know, a greasy spot on the, you know, in a cornfield somewhere. A lot of, a lot of times, you know, that's a, that's a rare event. That's like rolling double ones, right? It's the KIA event. But uh, a lot of times they have damage that forces them to land, right? So they have to, you know, try to land a damn thing. And you get choices too, right? You don't, you, force landings can go bad too, right? So the guy could try to make, make an attempt to land or crash land. And, you know, he might be killed in the attempt, right? Uh, but you may say, hey, look, you know what? I'd rather not take those chances. I'll just take my chances bailing out. So there's a whole, like, bailout mechanic you could try to bail out. Like, may, you know, maybe you would decide that's a better option for you because you're in friendly territory. I'm going to be good. I'm going to bail out. But, you know, sometimes... Let's just give bail. this airplane back to the taxpayers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so some things can happen. That force, you know, that crash landing, you could have, you know, perfect landing, you could have some minor damage. You could have a hard landing that damages the aircraft, potentially injures the pilot. And, of course, you can crash and burn, which could result from everything from, okay, luckily your pilot got out of there uninjured all the way to he was crippled and, you know, he's not going to return to a flying status. It, so there's a range of, of things that could happen. And then we mentioned, too, the whole thing about evading capture. That's where, you know, knowing where where the crash landing or the – you know, the bailout or the shoot down occurred matters because uh, then there's a whole like, hey, did the guy get captured? I've, we've both had guys get captured. I had a guy get captured by Steve and I didn't have him for several games, which equated to like, I don't know, four months of game time. But then I got him back. So, you know, there's a whole thing you do where you're in your post game to see if some of these guys come back, if they escaped and made it back to friendly territory. And lo and behold, one of my guys made it back. So it was kind of you know, it's just like kind of little exciting stuff like this. Like you kind of write this guy off. He's off the roster. But uh, four months later, I've got him back and he could return to flying status. So those kind of things will happen. Uh, Steve, why don't you tell us about yeah. damaged aircraft and the landing checks? Yeah. So, the you know, it was just funny because you're talking about the damaged aircrafts and the landing checks and all that. And then, of course, you know, you were talking about the bailout. Well, there's always the option when you bail out that, man, maybe your chute just doesn't open, right? So you just roll another one and chute doesn't open. So it's just always like you kind of said earlier, rolling's, rolling ones generally sucks. And uh, that's kind of all incorporated into this. So as far as the damage aircraft goes, uh, when you're playing the game, one thing you will track that would be different is if you get shot and you don't dodge but your plane doesn't get shot down. So say you're neutral, you take a hit, you don't dodge it, you get knocked down to disadvantage, but that guy winds up finishing out finishing out the scenario. So he that would essentially uh, mean that he, that is a damaged aircraft, right? So then there's a whole bunch of things that you do with that, and that damaged aircraft is going to be uh, more challenging to land on the get back when it gets back to base. There's going to be uh, a whole section post game where you're managing your squadron and you're managing your aircraft, and you'll have to repair that aircraft depending on the severity of the damage. So it could just be uh, your minor damage, they patch a few bullet holes, and you're good to go. 
up to, you know, totally destroyed. And it takes several games for the maintenance crew to repair that. So the damaged aircraft aspect of the campaign really uh, takes a lot into account of what planes you will have available for the subsequent scenarios that you play. These roles get really, uh, we get kind of anxious on these roles too, because sometimes you've got a guy, like, like you mentioned, like bailing out. And it's like, oh man, this is like my favorite guy. I hope he doesn't screw this up, you know. <laughs> you don't know until your role, right? So it's, there is a little bit of suspense and some fun that happens from that. So, but uh, as far as like things like damaged aircraft and, you know, missing pilots or injured pilots, there's a whole thing that happens in a post game too where you find out like, okay, how long are they going to be out, right? Like if the guy wasn't killed outright and he was just injured, there's going to be a consequence where you're not going to be able to play him for at least a game, right? If they're more severely injured, you know, it might be several games before he's, you know, cleared by the flight surgeon and able to come back to flying status. And the same thing with aircraft. They're managed kind of in the same way, depending on the severity of the aircraft damage and uh, your subsequent roles to get those aircraft quote unquote fixed. Uh, you know, you may, you, you may be without that particular aircraft for at least one game, but it may be several games before you roll good enough to it for it to come back uh, we worked in a whole mechanic too where presumably pilots and aircraft are healing if you will so the odds for a successful role to get it back improves by one every missed game so eventually they're gonna come back right you're gonna roll a success eventually but if you roll crappy like i do you know you might go three games without a pilot who's injured or without an aircraft that was damaged before it's repaired or the guy's healed so th those kind of things happen in the post game so tell us about the uh, the events and things that kind of go on uh, after the game, because it isn't just about, hey, did your pilots and airplanes make it? There's there's good and bad things that can happen uh, in between the games. That's right. So, you know, I kind of described how, you know, we're figuring out what happened to guys got shot down, what happened to their planes, a little bit about, you know, guys being injured and aircraft being damaged. You know, you're also tallying up all the ex the pilot experience and the squadron experience, which kind of gives you a, a bank account to work with for purchasing pilot replacements and needed aircraft replacements. Uh, so that's a like a tally thing that goes on. That's where I mentioned that squadron prestige thing kind of comes in. Some of that will play into uh, some of the things. But we go into this whole like post-game event thing where uh, I mentioned in the beginning how you, you make not only the names of your individual pilots, but you may also choose to generate special like non-player characters that are like staff officers and some other interesting characters that kind of hover around the squadron and ha have the ability to impact what happens for different elements of uh, your uh, like pilot replacements and other things like that, right? So uh, you could roll a, um, a special character action, which uh, means like you, you have uh, some number of special characters that are known to the squadron and as the as you play you might have the opportunity to meet new ones who are known to the squadron and they do things like help or hinder the squadron in some way uh, they may if they're flying special characters like flying staff officers and stuff they might join the next mission and just be like an extra an extra plane to help you out in your mission uh, they could transfer or move away where you you, you knew them one one mission, right? You might, you might've had like a, a maintenance officer that did things to help you or make your life harder. Uh, and, and you hope that as your game progresses, your, um, 
your uh, like the buffs that come from those kind of special characters just improve over time, but they could transfer away and you lose them all together. And you're like, crap, man, just when I was getting that, you know, just when I was getting the uh, maintenance officer where he was helping my squadron, now he's gone, right? So things like that will happen. There's also pilot action. I was going to make a logistics officer joke, but since it would just be teasing you and Chris isn't here to defend himself, uh, I won't make any of those. So you don't have the logistics officer in there to hinder you. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the all of the every single one of the special characters that we've built into this thing have the ability to help or hinder the squadron in some weird way. And some of them are kind of funny. Like we have uh, we have like there's a chaplain, there's a flight surgeon. If you're Russian, there could be a there could be a commissar. Uh, Dr. Jellyfinger, the flight surgeon. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So there's all kinds of like crazy things. There's even a um, what, what were we calling her? Uh, we called her the local bombshell, but before we put it in writing, we used to call her the a town pump, I think is what we called her, right? See? <laughs> yeah, I think that was it. <laughs> so there's, there's Always that. inappropriate. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So we've got we've got that. Uh, and there's a whole narrative that goes each of these characters that kind of describes like why they're even in there and what kind of stuff they can do for you. But uh, you know, they can all of these all these special characters could either do cool things or not so cool things for, you know how things work out for your squadron. So, so besides special character actions, there could be pilot actions. Pilot actions are kind of similar to the special character actions, but it's specifically your pilots, right? So a pilot could get sick or something like that. So he can't fly in the next mission or he could get transferred away or have to do some kind of like special, uh, you know, special extra duty or whatever. So they're not available to you for a brief amount of time. Uh, they could potentially, uh, gain another, um, a skill. So you remember in the beginning, I described how, you know, randomly, like some rookie pilot even could maybe generate or, or, or come to the table with an A skill. Uh, there are some A skills that don't necessarily require you to, you know, be, you know, years behind, you know, years in the cockpit that we decided like they could be ones that you could uh, randomly get just as a random event. So that that's a thing that could happen. Uh, but beyond, uh, Let's see, after piled actions, you could have squadron assets, and that's where something could happen that affects uh, like maintenance issues with your aircraft or some of your pilots that may go away. It's just another way to um, come up with different things that could change the way you got to build your roster or influence uh, some of the buffs and nerfs for your squadron as you're preparing for your next games. And that is mostly... Uh, just kind of top line on, um, I think, most of the post-game stuff. Um, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I that mean, gives us kind of an, an overview of, uh, of of what all goes in on in between the games. Steve, I know you had a, a couple thoughts on that. No, I was just going to say, it, that's, that's kind of it, right? And then the whole thing just kind of becomes cyclical, right? So you would do your post game and then you kind of have those like, Oh man, I can't believe you actually killed that guy this time. Or, Oh man, that was your best pilot. And he actually escaped back from being in prison. Right. And then it kind of just reestablishes itself. So you roll again for your next game and you kind of, you know, see what planes you have, manage your aircraft and just keep going through the whole, you know, the whole cycle. And it just, uh, you know, we spent the last couple episodes kind of talking about tournament and I think this really kind of strikes the balance where you're kind of doing a historical fiction scenario-ish type thing, but it has some of the limited list-building capabilities that the tournament has. And I, it just strikes a really good balance between both worlds of gaming. 
Oh yeah. And you know, it's not easy for guys to level up. So, you know, that becomes like, I don't know, I want to call it stressful, but you know, you're anxious to see these guys survive the mission, and, but still get, you know, s- some kills under their belt or rack up some XP by surviving so that they can move up to the next level. But it ain't easy. And then just when you think you're getting somewhere, maybe the guy gets shot down and you're back to square one or same thing with the aircraft. Like you're, you, you almost can't be too aggressive or too, uh, uh, too risky with your aircraft because you know you start losing aircraft because of stupid mistakes they're not always easy to replace and you kind of get yourself in a bind where you don't have enough aircraft to like adequately you know I, I mean, there's been plenty of times where like man I sure hope I have it's just a 500 point game next time because if we're a thousand point game I'm not I can't even build a list that's a thousand points I'm going to be completely behind the power curve because I don't have the aircraft I've had too many shot down that's that's a thing right so it's it's yeah fun. that's that's actually a really important thing right the whole squadron management aspect of it there have been numerous times where like you said you're like man if we roll a thousand or a 1500 point game i'm gonna be seriously at a disadvantage because i don't even have that to put out there you know i have to go two or three more games till i get these three or four planes back that were damaged in the previous scenario. And then there's been times where you're kind of waiting to get those planes back. So you're playing that next game, super conservative. And it just really adds like that second layer of thinking to how you're playing the game when you're actually playing the actual scenario out. Well, I think that's one of the the big differences between what, you guys have created and how sandstorm plays out because sandstorm while it does have a way for leveling up and and treating damaged aircraft it's a very short-term campaign it's people level up fairly quickly especially if you actually down enemy fighters uh and aircraft are rarely out for more than one battle and if they are that badly damaged then they get stuck with a poor quality treat for the remainder of the campaign which kind of cracks me up no one wants to fly that one no one wants to fly christine that's the airplane everyone wants to stick on their wingman um but it seems to me that the way you guys have built your system is for much more long-term campaign which is good because you know let's be honest to go back to you know, all the role-playing game analogies where we're making fun of everybody uh, that was always kind of the fun to take characters from level one all the way up. And if you had a, a campaign where people leveled too quickly and suddenly were super powerful characters, you know, it kind of took took away a little bit of the fun of uh, of just the trip in the sense, the, the getting from point A to point B. Uh, and it seems to me that at least with your your campaign system and how it rolls through the scenarios, there's enough variety that you feel like you can fight, you know, several months of if not you know a year and a half of the war and not feel like it's a drudgery to play the games because something new is going to happen or you're just getting to the point where you're you're getting enough aircraft to be able to do the missions you want uh and and so there's a a lot of tension there and a, a lot more excitement than just okay we'll play five games and everybody will be an ace yeah i would i would say that's definitely accurate uh it's cool to see it's not so arduous that the progression uh seems like it's never going to happen but it does take effort and i i think it's fairly realistic right so if you have a guy that is just for whatever reason in situations where he's getting a lot of actual shoot downs he's going to level up quicker than a guy that's just kind of flying out and returning to base and you know certainly just surviving the mission does 
give skill points, but it is, it is realistic in the aspect that uh, guys that are performing are leveling up quicker. They are rolling to get A skills. They are uh, getting little buffs for doing good things, and it, it all kind of just kind of flows flows through as you're as you're playing yeah i mentioned that we decided you know each each game needs to represent a certain amount of time actual calendar time and for steve and i we've picked you know one game equals one month i I think it would probably be most realistic in terms of you know pilot skill leveling up and everything if each game was one week but steve and i intend to play uh Although, you know, we were initially thinking, let's play, you know, we'll go from Battle of Britain to Mediterranean to Eastern Theater to, or, or to maybe Defense of the Reich all the way to the end, right? And, and to do that, I mean, hell, one game a month is probably going to take us three years to play. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Play the war in real time. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, if you were playing a smaller campaign, like if you were just going to do Battle of Britain, it would still take you a long time. One game a week, maybe it would feel a little more like you're leveling up faster. But, you know, of course, also your exposure to, you know, getting shot down and stuff is much greater, too. But um yeah, it, the leveling up thing, it, it happens, and so it, it, it's valuable, right? So because it doesn't happen so quickly the way we're playing it, it's not like uh, you can be super – I guess compared to Sandstorm, you know, you, you, I think Sandstorm's designed in a way where you can play, you know, balls to the wall in every single game. You're going to be making decisions in this campaign system that I think feel a little bit more – cautious and realistic you know you're because you're you're weighing not only like the risk of losing these valuable guys and valuable aircraft because you're thinking man i gotta i got another game after this one i gotta be able to you know do something with but um you know you also have some constraints and limitations built into that too it's like you're you're kind of thinking about a lot of these things as you're playing each game oh yeah well we've been talking for quite a while so i wanted to kind of wrap this up by talking about the different theaters this is prepared to support because i think a lot of people look at uh, a really good product like sandstorm and it is geared towards a specific time period in the war specific location sure there's some things you can change up um, but it's it's not really geared to supporting just about anything you want to do you could you could build your own aircraft list and and, and change some of the uh, events and some of the way the scenarios work uh, and you could make it work but you guys have done something a little bit different tell us uh, a little bit about how those uh, availability charts work out for the aircraft all right. Well, I mentioned that we divided divided everything up into each year, and we broke each year into three categories, right? Early, mid, and late. And uh, we've kind of color coded the availability for the aircraft. So we, you know, like I don't I don't really know much at all about the Japanese aircraft, but I could go to our Japanese, you know, not not knowing much about Japanese aircraft, I could go to a chart, and it's all kind of baby birded for me. So if I know what time frame of uh, the war I tend to play with my my counterpart and I'm going to be Japanese, all I have to do is go to the chart and find the aircraft that are available for me. That's a super big win because you know, that would help me learn. I, I just I have, We're not playing Japanese. I'm not playing Japanese right now, but if I were, I know I would be learning a ton about Japanese aircraft that I don't already know because that chart would help guide me and I'm sure I'd be like, what is this plane? I'd you know, accidentally discover a whole bunch of stuff about it. So there are... Well, so let's give charts. credit... 
let's give credit where credit is due on that one, because uh, I, I think we pretty much all of us on the Lead Pursuit podcast have a reputation for not being the most uh, detailed historians out there. That's not what we do. Uh, where did a lot of that data come from? Man, Leslie Mitchell and uh, now Roger Garrish have been super helpful in, in uh, coming up with a historically accurate availability for these different aircraft. And we've included a lot, we, we thought real hard about this, like how to organize it. So instead of organizing the belligerent powers by theater, we've just listed it by, by faction, if you will. So like all of Great Britain and the Commonwealth and their aircraft by date, right? Germany, US, Japan, Soviet Union. We've got Italy before and after the armistice, Dutch East Indies, Poland, France, sorry, we didn't add the Vichy French yet. That's maybe later. Uh, Romania, Hungary, Finland, they're in there. And uh, those guys, uh, Leslie, especially in the beginning, I mean, he was like a, I don't know. What do you, what do you, what's a sci-fi? Yeah, reference? I mean, he's, I don't even, like the Oracle, right? He's just as like <laughs> constantly, uh, but let's be very clear what was said here, okay? Leslie Mitchell and Roger Garish are the experts on the aircraft. We are idiots. So if you are upset about one of your aircraft being missing, we will attach their email addresses to the show notes here, and you can uh, send it over to them. But Please when send Doug's all hate mail to Roger. <laughs> Roger's good about accepting your hate mail. He'll tell you exactly where you can shove it. <laughs> but when Doug says, like, what? What areas does this, does this encompass? The answer is essentially everything. If it happened between 19, uh, late 1939 and the end of 1945, you you can get you can schedule your campaign around any battles, theaters of operation, pretty much essentially anything that happened in there. And uh, it's laid out similar to the style that it's laid out in Sandstorm, where you have aircraft availability in chunks of the year. But the depth of the information in it is, it's really mind-boggling, the depth that Leslie and Roger went to to get this correctly. Somebody's going to want to do, like, American Volunteer Group and the Chinese, and we don't have that in there. But, you know, forgive us. We've, <laughs> we've tried to include just about everything. It had to, had to like... Kind of fish or cut, you know, we had to cut sling load at some I, point. I right? gotta say, yeah, I, I've been working on the periphery of this thing and watching you guys put it together, and I just have had to laugh because, uh, the, the, the things you guys have been chasing your tails over for aircraft availability and stuff like that is funny because I, you've done a great job with it, in my opinion, and it's a huge level of detail. And, and to be honest, I think it supports well even outside of a campaign setting. If you just wanted to do a one-off game and you said, I want to base it in this campaign, what kind of things could be available? And rather than digging through all the history books and looking for exact squadron laydowns and and you know matrices of what aircraft we wear, you just really can flip this open and go, oh, here's the year I am. Here's the powers we have, that we the factions we want to play. Uh, let's pick the aircraft, and and you can just you know make a quick pickup game from that. Yeah, and you know I I don't want to really kind of like you know toot my own horn horn here right or like really tout like what me and Brett did here is this great thing. Please don't. Uh, that's a that's a different show and that yeah. you know, generates a different <laughs> revenue stream. <laughs> it's my OnlyFans. Toot yeah. <laughs> toot your own horn. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, uh, we've been talking about this thing for almost a year now. Uh, 
I, yeah, stuff I know. Well, you guys borrowed. have to shut up about it. <laughs> you know, we borrowed stuff from places and we flat out stole stuff from places. But the the polish that's on this, uh, the presentation of it, the way it looks. Uh, I mean, you know, when when the proof, the latest proof got kind of got delivered, and my wife was like, "Wow, this looks like an actual book." Right. You know, so it doesn't mean, look it, like something that three yeah. toed slaws put together with a stapler. No, I nice mean, work. this is I, everybody out there. It is worth the wait. You know, we have what I really think is going to be our last print revision to take to Gathering of Eagles before it goes, you know, to final print and gets available to people. Uh, it really is a professional level of finish, professional level product. I mean, you know, we sound like idiots, but Brett, I swear, he's like a, a grammar, senior college level professor, grammar guy in disguise. I mean, it's insane, like the amount of writing intellect that went into this. It, it just really is like a, a truly, truly well done piece of gaming booklet instructions. Well, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to play through it a little bit. I know I've got so many things stacked up on my uh, <laughs> on my gaming uh, requirements, to whether it's uh, Pakistan scenarios, whether it's uh, going through more of the Taiwan Straits scenarios. I have a bunch of those things, plus prepping for GOE uh, and then trying to play through all the stuff from Kickstarters that has shown up over the last couple months. So uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to work through it. Maybe a little tabletop sim might be uh, in order so I can get a game in without actually being physically present. Well, cool. Well, let's wrap it up. Uh, Brett, is there anything in summary you really want to say about uh, the campaign system? Uh, no, you know, kind of the biggest, other than the biggest thing I hope people will get from this is kind of like the, what I was describing with uh, like my own, like the Japanese thing. Like I know that when I play Japanese, I'm going to learn a ton that I don't know because of this thing. And if nothing else, because of the aircraft charts and then just the fun of playing. And I hope that that happens for other folks as they play this. Like maybe they'll play something they don't really know much about and it'll expand their knowledge because of their interest and the fun they have in the game for all these things. We, Steve and I have learned a ton just from all the work we've done on this. And uh, I think it'll be a fun way for people to discover stuff that they didn't already know. Absolutely. Steve, any last parting thoughts? Yeah, I would say the same thing, right? So even just from the little bit of the campaign we played, right, uh, you know, kind of researching, oh, man, I didn't realize the RAF, you know, flew the Mustang in this time period. And then you're kind of, you know, playing games of the campaign to get to that point. So it is historically accurate enough that you're really going to learn something. And it's historical fiction enough that it just makes it fun uh, and I really, really hope people can appreciate both aspects of that, right? That it's historical and it's accurate, but it really is about having fun and kind of creating this narrative of the war for yourself. Uh, and I really hope people kind of embrace it in that in that way. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate the hard work that you guys have put in on this project. I know I've been a pain in people's ass, to be blunt, uh, about some of these things. But I think it's going to be a project and a, a product that people are going to enjoy getting their hands on and playing through. And and not just playing through once and putting to the side, but actually going back and spending time running multiple different campaigns and uh, different events with it. Thanks for being on tonight, guys. Uh, remind everyone to please like us and uh, leave us some comments and say how messed up we are and how we don't know what we're talking about. That's fine. I'd rather get negative feedback than no feedback at all. So 
<laughs> go out there and comment uh, on social media and on whatever your favorite podcast app is. Likewise, please sign up for some of the events coming up. I'd love to see uh, everybody at Gathering of Eagles uh, on the 4th through 6th of June. And if we can't see you there, then hopefully as things progress later in the summer, later in the fall, we will see all of you guys out there, guys and gals at events and conventions starting to play Blood Red Skies more and get a couple more of the tournament scenes going. We'll keep everyone posted on updates to the tournaments and to the events. Thanks for joining us tonight. Dude, I'm actually pissed because they didn't have some of the aircraft I wanted. I, I would I would have absolutely bought one today, but I'm like, yeah, the aircraft they have, not really what I wanted. What, you don't want a Spitfire? I thought it was your favorite. <laughs> you, you can see the meme right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just have to be silent and you can see it in your mind. That's right. Samuel L. Jackson in a wife beater glaring at you. <laughs>